you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Just a reminder, if you missed any of our critics' reviews for the previous two-thirds of the program, you know where to go to get the program at uh, LAist.com, or you can download Film Week and subscribe to it each week wherever you get your podcasts. The hit comedy Anchorman uh, has continued to be highly influential in films, and it's quite a collaboration between its star and the creator of the film, who's gone on, Adam McKay, of course, to do a number of comedies uh, with a message, so to speak. But in Anchorman, there are a number of set pieces in the film that are true classics. We're going to be talking about them with Saul Austerlitz, who's author of kind of a big deal, how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. Saul's an adjunct professor of writing and comedy history at NYU, author of the book Generation Friends about the TV show. Thank you so much, Saul, for being with us to talk about Anchorman. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with how you use this with your students, because I found that really fascinating. You show the film to them. And what, why do you choose this as a movie for them to react to? Yeah, so I teach a class called Writing About American Comedy, and the first week of each semester, I show them Anchorman, and I show it to them a little bit as a provocation. You know, as time passes, students get younger, and they may not even be familiar with the movie at all, but for those of them who are, they often may be a bit dismissive of it as something that's funny, but disposable. And I show them this movie in particular to get them to think about all the different critical tools that they might use in order to write well about this movie, whether it's thinking about this movie as a product of Saturday Night Live, whether it's thinking about this movie as part of Will Ferrell or Adam McKay's work, whether it's thinking about this movie in terms of the story of television news or the 1970s or feminism, and just get them to realize that even this fairly disposable feeling comedy actually has a lot of depth to it. So funny, because people who work in TV news will tell you, oh, that the character that was Burgundy was modeled after, you know, someone that they worked with, obviously. But if you're familiar, as you say, with 1970s news and uh, smaller market news like San Diego here, I mean, it's, it's just Farrell's portrayal of the character is, is absolutely hilarious. The vanity, uh, the, um, the attitudes about gender, all the things that come through in such an exaggerated but hilarious sense through Farrell's character. And, and are students able to get any of that, or is there really other levels of the film to which they're reacting? Yeah, I think they're a bit surprised to realize that there's, you know, reality kind of hidden under the exaggeration here. But I think, I hope that it gets them to, to thinking about the ways in which comedy, which often feels so over the top, can also contain a kind of fascinating mirror image reflection of our own reality or of recent history. How did the concept for the film come together between McKay and Farrell? So McKay and Farrell had initially, uh, they they had met while working together on Saturday Night Live. Uh, McKay was the head writer on the show in the mid-90s, 
and Farrell was sort of the breakout star of that era. And they really enjoyed working together and they talked about, okay, well, why don't we think about writing a script together? So they wrote a script called August Blowout, which was about a used car salesman in Anaheim. And by all accounts, it was very funny and people really liked it, uh, but they just couldn't sell it. And, um, you know, they got a lot of positive feedback, but it ultimately didn't go anywhere. And it was a distressing and unpleasant experience for them. And they weren't really sure if they were going to take another stab at writing together. And then they ultimately decided to, to persist. And Farrell was home watching TV one evening and was flipping channels and came across an A&E biography episode about Jessica Savage, the 1970s uh, television newscaster. And one of her colleagues, uh, a man named Mort Krim, was on, and he was saying very offhandedly that, of course, you know, it was the 1970s and we were all a bunch of male chauvinist pigs. And a light bulb went off over Farrell's head and he realized, oh, there's something that we can work with here. There's there's a comic nugget that we can form into something bigger. And and so they ran with that idea. From the beginning, was this going to be a film in which gender attitudes were at the center? Was that or did that evolve over time? <laughs> it very much evolved. Uh, the original version of the script had uh the Ron Burgundy character and his fellow newscasters flying to Philadelphia for a newscasters convention when the airplane crashes. And the film is uh, uh, mostly concentrating on acts of cannibalism in which the newscasters end up eating each other. Oh uh, and all, all the while, they're being picked off one by one by orangutans who are carrying ninja throwing stars. So a somewhat different version of the movie at the outset. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and at what point did, did they, did the actual shape of the film, you know, come into it and, and, and what, what did they decide were the most important themes of, of the film? Obviously it's gotta be funny, but they needed something to hang it on. Yeah, so sort of two key moments for them, one before production and one during production. Uh, eventually, Judd Apatow, uh, who was known at the time for series like Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, uh, came and joined them and helped them with the screenwriting process. And he had two important things to say to them. One was that the script that they had was really funny, but was essentially a Monty Python sketch, and they weren't yet Monty Python. Um, and that, so they needed to have more character development. They needed to have more of a sense of why we care about any of the people in the movie. And simultaneously, he was also telling them that some of the things that they had sort of very briefly sketched out in their screenplay, like imagining, uh, you know, a vicious, violent showdown between rival news teams, um, was something that they needed to develop further, you know, put everything <laughs> on the page that they pictured, uh, and see what will come of it. So and that was me, really to me. That scene you just described is the highlight of the entire film. Let's listen to the news team battle scene as World Ferrell's Ron Burgundy and his news team face off with other news groups led by Vince Vaughn, Luke Wilson, Tim Robbins, and Ben Stiller fighting for San Diego supremacy. Let's do this. Hey. We're gonna have a fight. And don't forget Channel 2 News with me, lead anchor Frank Richard. You dirtbags have been in third place for five years. Yeah, well, you're about to be in dead place. 
news team is taking a break from its pledge drive to kick some ass. No commercials, no mercy! No! Such a great idea. Did they share with you where the concept for that that came from, uh, Saul? Yeah, I think they were thinking about some classic films in terms of planning this out. So there were elements of West Side Story in here. There are elements of The Warriors. Um, they were thinking a little bit about Planet of the Apes in the moment where Paul Rudd's character gets, you know, dragged off in a net by people on horseback. Uh, but it's a little bit of all of that. And then also some specific, very specific ideas that Adam McKay had. Like he knew that in this sequence, he really wanted to have a man on fire running through the scene for no particular reason whatsoever. Uh, and that was really crucial to his vision for this sequence as well. We're talking about uh, the film Anchorman, kind of a big deal. The book by Saul Austerlitz, our guest, how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. Uh, Will Ferrell, Adam McKay collaborating on the film. Also very important casting in the movie as well. Christina Applegate's Veronica Corning is, of course, a huge, uh, huge part of the film as well. And we're going to be talking about uh, how that casting played out as well in the success of the film. Steve Carell, also a part of the cast of Anchorman and a series of films uh, followed as well. Saul, did, did, did any of the sequels, sequels just real quickly uh, work as well for you? Yeah, I think that Anchorman 2 has a lot of really interesting material in it. I think it's much more uh, serious about the specifics of television news. It's set in the early 1980s and kind of tackles the dawn of cable news. Not every part of it works quite so well. There's a whole extended sequence where Ron goes blind and moves to a lighthouse and it kind of sounds funnier <laughs> and yeah. than it is in the actual movie. Um, but I do think it's a better movie than people sometimes remember. There's some fun set pieces too. We'll continue with Saul Austerlitz, kind of a big deal his book back in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. You play jazz flute? I dabble. Oh. Would everyone love to hear Ron Burgundy play some jazz flute? Get on stage now. Okay, Come I guess on. I can play a little ditty. Honestly. Come on. Give me a hand. I'm not prepared. I really am not prepared at all. Yes! This is a surprise, I'll tell you. <laughs> Guys, E Harlem Shakedown, E flat. Keep the cymbal splashy, and uh, Jerry, let's take the bass line for a walk. Hold on. I'm not hearing it right. Hold on. 
scene at Tito's Club, Ron Burgundy, played by Will Ferrell, trying to seduce his new co-worker, Veronica Corningstone, played by Christina Applegate. And there you hear his impressive jazz flute. We're talking about Anchorman with Saul Austerlitz, uh, who's an adjunct professor at NYU, author of Kind of a Big Deal, How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century. Casting was so important here, and to have the right actor to play Veronica is so important. Applegate does a terrific job, Saul. Describe a bit about uh, the process of casting the film and when they knew that Applegate was the right person. Yeah, they ended up bringing in quite a few people to look at for the role of Veronica, which is so crucial to the film, both in terms of her being, you know, the the most genuine actual person in the movie and also someone who really has to simultaneously be the kind of straight man and also be exceptionally funny in her own right. So initially, there had been a suggestion that they look at Leslie Mann, who is Judd Apatow's wife and would go on to be in movies um, like Knocked Up and is wonderful in them, but they didn't feel like she was quite right for the role. Um, They brought in Amy Adams, who Adam McKay in particular absolutely loved, but his concern was that The role of Veronica was someone who we understand is a veteran journalist, that this is not her first job. She's already been kind of around for some time. And McKay was worried that Amy Adams looked too young for the role and that something would feel off as a result. And he'd go on to cast her in his next movie, Talladega Nights. So he very much liked her, but just didn't feel like she worked here. And then they brought in Maggie Gyllenhaal and McKay absolutely loved her and thought, his first thought was, you know, this actress is going to win an Oscar someday. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the Meryl Streep of this generation. And then his second thought was, well, we're aiming to kind of make our generation's version of Airplane. And would I cast Meryl Streep in Airplane? And so decided that she wasn't quite right either. And, Chris, and Christina Applegate didn't quite fit the bill in terms of what they had imagined. You know, she didn't really have Uh, sketch comedy or improv comedy experience, but she had been on Married with Children for, you know, over 10 years, had done hundreds of episodes, was extremely comfortable in the world of comedy, uh, was extremely comfortable operating with other comic performers, and also had the advantage of really looking like a kind of throwback leading lady, which was something that they were looking for for this role as well. And so the combination of her being able to kind of play with all of these experienced sketch comedy performers and also having very much the look that they uh, had imagined helped them make the decision in her favor. Well, and and the way she portrays the characters is as someone who's had to deal her whole career with Ron Burgundy type men. And so you you get the sense of that in the way she she carries out her character. Yeah, I think Applegate does a superb job in showing how she handles herself in these very difficult situations where she's just being, you know, surrounded on all sides by these uh, unblinking misogynists. And she manages to be funny and keep her sense of humor and also always win every battle. You know, she wins the verbal battles. She even wins the physical battles uh, in the fight between her and Ron in the newsroom. Uh, she ends up pulling off one of the television antennas and whipping him with it, you know, literally taking the tools of their collective trade and beating him with them. Great symbolism. I think that that's just a terrific moment in the film. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, what this film meant for the careers of the two creators, Adam McKay and for Will Ferrell. I mean, this is one of the most 
um, iconic roles for for Farrell, right? He's done a lot of movies, but people still think of the Ron Burgundy character. Yeah, you know, I think Ron Burgundy is that rare character who feels like he has life off the screen as well. So we end up seeing Ron Burgundy in everything from Dodge commercials to ESPN interviews to, you know, appearances on the local news in North Dakota when they were doing the promotion for Anchorman too. And it feels like it makes sense. We we believe in Ron Burgundy as someone who really exists in the world in some fashion. And so, yeah, I think Ron is, is clearly Will Ferrell's most iconic role and the one that he is still the most associated with. For Adam McKay, how do you see this Um, leading in to the acclaimed films that he did post-Anchorman, you know, so many of them with a a sort of social point beyond the comedy. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes his movies get spoken of as if they're two totally separate halves of his career, you know, the comedy part and the drama part. And I see much more of a relationship here. Uh, Oftentimes when you go back and look at the reviews of the earlier films, they're treated as comedies that just have these weird bits that are sticking out that the critics don't know how to wrestle with. So they write about The Other Guys, which is a later film of his with Farrell and Mark Wahlberg as police officers. And most of the reviews are like, well, this is a really funny, you know, cop buddy film. And then there's all this odd stuff about the financial crisis that just feels like it's put in there haphazardly. And I think I understand it differently and see it more as McKay kind of wrestling with the social agenda from the very outset, including an anchor man. And when you look at the later films, you know, they're much more out in the open about what they're trying to do, but they're also comedies. I look at The Big Short, uh, which is a wonderful movie, but it's very explicitly about the financial crisis. And it's also a movie about, you know, how do men talk and behave and act when they're all together uh, in a room? And in that sense, it reminds me more than anything of Anchorman. Yeah. And uh, and obviously this film, with the popularity that it enjoyed, helped further propel the careers of, of both of them. Um, did they anticipate the kind of reaction to this movie at all that they got? Did they realize they captured lightning in a bottle? I think there was a sense during the production that they were doing the thing that they wanted to do. You know, McKay in particular was very adamant that he wanted to make a film in which the performers would be able to improvise and try different things and be experimental in a way that generally was frowned upon in movie making, right? Like what could be a better example of literally setting your money on fire than just letting the camera run and keep shooting while people try to think of lines to deliver. But it was really important to McKay to do it in that particular way. And so I think he thought, He believed that he was successful in giving his performers the ability to do that. But I don't think it really sunk in until substantially later that this was that they realized that this was a movie that connected with people. One of the stories that McKay told me was that his wife was driving around the following Halloween uh, and was so shocked by what she saw that she (laughs) called him, held up the phone to, you know, some Halloween revelers and asked them, who are you dressed as? And they all shouted Ron Burgundy. And that seemed to me that that seemed to him like the moment where he he you know grasped that this movie had had an, a real life to it. 
Saul, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your new book, which has all kinds of detail from the many interviews you conducted with people, including Sampler and McKay, about the making of the film and about the influence it's had on American culture in the nearly 20 years since its release. Kind of a big deal how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. Saul Austerlitz, the author of the book. Thanks so much for joining us for Film Week here on Alayist 89.3. If you missed any of the program, just make sure that you get it wherever you get your podcast to hear the entire program or at alayist.com. Have a great weekend. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.